want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 225. Entitled the sermon this morning, Trusting God in the Dark. And the keywords for our worshipers in training are rejoice, providence, and salvation. Today uh, and next week, we will be uh, revisiting the series that uh, we, I began a while back, working through some of the songs of the Bible. In our study so far, we have seen the importance of singing full, theologically robust songs. We've seen in Exodus 15, and Deuteronomy 32, and Judges 5 that God is supreme. There is none like Him. He is able to mete out true justice against His adversaries, and He alone is able to do that. And He works in ways that confound the wisdom of man. And today we will be looking at Hannah's prayer, or her song, if you will, after her first child, Samuel, was born. The book, First Samuel, begins with another description of the inevitable strife and stress that comes with men marrying more than one woman. We're told that during the days of the judges in the hill country of Ephraim, there was a man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And like most uh, of the other similar stories in the Old Testament, Penina had children, Hannah had no children. However, Elkanah preferred Hannah over Penina. This obviously did not sit well with Penina, who, verse 6 tells us, would provoke Hannah and ridicule her year after year after year over her barrenness. You could say that these were dark days for Hannah. We're told that she would weep. She would struggle to eat. Can you put yourself in her place? I know many of you have had, you have experienced dark and difficult trials in your life. Many of you with a very similar trial. Infertility, barrenness. And even if that is not your particular trial, does her experience resonate with you? Wanting something badly, but not getting it. Well, not only is she barren, and her, I don't even know what you would call her, this other woman, this the wife of her husband, taunting her. Her experience gets worse. Because not only does Penina mock her and taunt her year in and year out, but her husband is perhaps as dense as they come. Look in verse 8. He says, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why are you sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Wow, this guy does not know how to talk to women. 
But nevertheless, Hannah diligently, we're told, seeks the Lord in prayer, asking for a child, promising in verse 11, God, give me a child and I will give him back. She would give him as a Nazarite to the priest to serve God in the temple his whole life. But further, to add insult to injury, not only does she have the berating of Panina to endure and the blundering Elkanah to ignore so that perhaps she doesn't punch him right in his face, Eli, the priest, in her distress, mistakes her for a drunkard. Childless Hannah, bitter distress, overwhelming her, fervently pouring out herself before God, and the priest of God, considers her to be a drunk. Dark days indeed. And then one day, God answers her prayer. He opened her womb, and she bore a son and named him Samuel. And after Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him her precious three-year-old son to the temple to be with the priest the rest of his days. Surely she would have seen him some, visited him, but he would no longer be hers. He was God's. And after handing him over, she prays. And this is what she says. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world." He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. What a prayer. What a song. And as we work through these words this morning, the big idea is this. If I can just front load it here. It's that robust, 
concrete, deep theology is necessary for enduring the darkest moments of our lives. And to make that point, there are three observations from this passage that we will consider. First, in verses 1 to 3, we will see Hannah's love for the character of God. In 4 through 8, we will see Hannah's embrace of the providence of God. And third, in verses 9 and 10, we will see Hannah's hope in the salvation of God. We see her love for the character of God, her embrace of the providence of God, and her hope in the salvation of God. So first, in 1 to 3, Hannah's love for God's character. Her song begins with joy. She says that she exalts or rejoices in the Lord and her strength is exalted in God. What a way to begin a prayer after all she has been through. Imagine the things that could be going through her mind at this point. Regret. She could easily have been saying to herself, what have I done? What vow did I just make? Every day, every week, every month, every year, every milestone that Samuel passed would have been a reminder to her. He is not yours to keep. Your days with Him are numbered. Mothers, how would you feel? What would you think? What would it be like to be Hannah? You have nursed your only child, the one that you prayed for for years and years and years, and now it's time. Three maybe four years in, to give him up. Fathers, what kind of hesitation would be in your steps that day on the way to the temple? She could easily have dreaded this day and been filled with bitterness and remorse. But that is not what we see here at all. What is on the forefront of her mind? What is the dominant theme of her heart? Praise and thanksgiving. She is exalting in the Lord, receiving strength from her God, and rejoicing in His salvation. How? How can she do this? It's because she has come to know and love the character of God. She says in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And so as we think about the substance of which our prayers and our songs should be made, this is it. And yet, another difficult circumstance of having to give her child away. She makes bold, crystal clear declarations about the nature and character of God. God is holy, utterly unique, and a rock like no one else. There is no being as devoted to righteousness as this God, the only God. There is no being able to deliver like God. 
like this God, the only God. There is no being worth comparing with this God because there is no other God. God is completely set apart qualitatively and quantitatively superior to every other being in this universe. And she says in her distress, there is no God but this God. And she draws an important conclusion, an inference from this. She says, talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. You see, for Hannah, theology was not abstract. It did not exist apart from God. She didn't think of God's attributes as separate and distinct from life in the real world. Her theology had consequences, and she knew it. If God was who he had revealed himself to be, then foolish men and women needed to shut their mouths. How prone are we to speak in our arrogance about our knowledge and strength? The human race, by birth, is given over to pride and vanity. But Hannah instructs us here, close your mouth, stop talking, and listen. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him, every action, every thought, every word will be weighed, judged, and condemned or vindicated. In a sermon on these verses, Derek Thomas had this to say about Hannah's words in verses 1 to 3. She can pray this prayer because she knows this God. She loves this God. She worships this God. She has covenant fellowship with this God. She is in a relationship with this God whereby she can speak to Him and commune with Him and bless Him and thank Him and revere Him. Do you see? The path to peace isn't found by looking inward, by digging deep and finding some inner strength to get you through the day. The path to peace is found by robust reflection and meditation upon the character and the being of God. This brings us to a second observation Verses 4 to 8, we see Hannah's embrace of the providence of God. She not only loves his character, she embraces his work in the world. It is a right understanding of his providence that sustains her. Consider what she says here in these verses. She says, Mighty men with bows and arrows, their bows snap like twigs before the Lord. And yet the feeble somehow aren't crushed, but bind on strength. The wealthy, those who perhaps wear sweatpants to dinner so that they don't bust another zipper, they have lost it all and now must grind and grind for their keep. And those who go to bed, wherever that might be, hungry most nights, they have ceased to starve. They have been filled. The barren has borne seven Seven sons would have been the the perfect best-case scenario in the Hebrew mind. In the Lord, this reversal takes place before us. The barren has her home filled with children. 
And the one who has children, she is left sad, lonely, and abandoned. And where do all these things come from? From the Lord, according to Hannah. Or she continues, life and death come from the Lord. He throws sinners down to Sheol and raises up his beloved. He makes poor, he makes rich. He brings low and esteems. He raises the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap, that they may sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Because the world is his to do with as he pleases. And so with this observation about her embrace of God's providence, there there are two quick, uh, fairly quick things I'd like to note. The first is, is just how we understand God's providence. How she acknowledges, like Job, we see in Hannah here, she acknowledges that everything comes to us from God. Like Job, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? There is nothing that happens in this entire universe apart from the hand of God. Otherwise, we have no hope. But the second thing, so not only do we understand that everything comes from God, but we have to understand that He, he doesn't run the world according to our fallen and finite wisdom. It runs according to his wisdom. It's full of mystery and reversals. Rich become poor, poor become rich, strong men faint, and uh, and, um, frail men endure. The hungry are fed, the wealthy are famished. But there's more going on here than, than just temporary externals. I don't think we should content ourselves in this passage to focus primarily on things that happen even in this life. A crooked businessman losing his entire fortune or a poor, honest, used car salesman inheriting a fortune from a long-lost uncle. What we're talking about here is the great reversal of eternity. Psalm 73 continues uh, this thought. It's this excellent expansion of this idea. In that psalm, Asaph ponders aloud before God, why does it seem that the wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer? Why are sinful, godless men driving fancy cars, living in mansion-esque homes, marrying women who bear them strong and healthy children, They seem so happy, so at ease, so at rest. They're so untroubled. According to the psalmist, they live in such such luxury that they have convinced themselves God cannot see them, He will not see them, and they will escape all manner of wrath. In other words, Asaph says they're getting away with murder, literally. But there's a decisive turning point in Psalm 73. He goes on with that for about 15 verses. And then in, Psalm, uh, in uh, verses 16 and 17, he begins to really try to understand this fact. He says it was a wearisome task, thinking that the righteous suffer, 
the wicked prosper, but then he turns his attention to the sanctuary of God. He begins to consider God, as it were, in the inner sanctum. Like Hannah, he begins to think on God's attributes, his being, his works, and he comes to a startling but glorious realization. In the light of the glory and majesty of the Holy One, Asaph discerns the end of the wicked. All he had been able to see was temporary, but there was a final day of judgment coming. He sees the wicked really are in slippery places. And one day, they will fall to ruin. They will be destroyed, swept away in a moment. The wicked, the psalmist has come to see, one day will be brought to utter and complete destruction. The riches, comfort, and ease they experience in this life will not save them. In fact, as kindnesses of God now, they will only condemn them. But what about the righteous? He says, whom have I in heaven besides you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from God shall perish, he says, but it is good for me to be near God. You see again this God of great reversals. It's like the rich man in Lazarus we read about in Luke's Gospel. The rich man, we're told, had received his good things in life. Lazarus, poor beggar at his gate, ignored. He had received bad things. But upon their deaths, Lazarus comforted the rich man in anguish. And this is the great word for us here in 1 Samuel 2. God brings low and God exalts. He turns princes into paupers, paupers into princes. But what is it that brings about this change? Is it mere material possession? Is that the decisive factor in a person's ultimate fate? Are rich people in this life doomed to eternity in agony no matter what simply because they were rich i sure hope not because by the world standard all of us here in this room that's us and or are the are poor people free to to live however they please because because they know that god has some kind of soft spot for people in poverty those who suffer No, and that brings us to a third and final point. Verses 9 and 10, we see Hannah's hope in God's salvation. Do riches and poverty serve as the fundamental dividing line between humanity? Answer, no, faith does. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness For not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah's hope is rooted in her Savior. Those who come to God by faith shall never be moved. His adversaries shall be broken to pieces. God will thunder against them in heaven. Every person who ever lives will stand before God one day. Judgment is inevitable. 
We're told here, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. There is no place that will escape. Not a single people group, not a single person on planet earth will escape the judgment. But that begs the question, how shall we stand? Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? Who indeed, if we are going to be judged by our own merit, in our own right, not one of us could stand before God. But praise be to God, this song isn't over. She continues, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Who is she talking about? Who is this king? Who is God's anointed? Perhaps you've, you've run on ahead. Because there was, after all, in her day, no king in Israel. Right? Samuel is the one who would eventually anoint David to be king over Israel. Samuel's just a baby. There's no king in Israel. But even if we were talking about David, or perhaps Solomon, if they were to be the telos, the, the end, the goal of this prayer, it feels incomplete. We're shortchanged. Because if you know anything about either of those men, they were deeply flawed. Neither of them ultimately established God's rule in the earth. And so to which king does this prayer look? Go ahead, say it. Jesus, Jesus, God's anointed, the Son of His love, He was to receive strength and praise and glory. And yet He does it in a way of reversals. This King, this King of ours, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, left His heavenly throne and became one of us. The Prince becomes the Pauper, capital P's. The king of glory takes his crown, a crown which all the stars in the universe would fail to fill. Take every star, whatever billions of stars they are, give them as jewels to this king, and they are pale, dim rocks in comparison to his crown and his face. And he exchanges this crown for what? A crown of thorns twisted together, beat into his skull. The bread of life staggered through the wilderness 40 days without so much as a crumb to the point of being tempted to look to rocks for food. 1 Samuel 2, 9. We read it earlier. God will guard the feet of the faithful. This is only possible because the feet of Him who was truly faithful were were nailed to a cross. The mighty man was lashed to a post, beaten with a whip, and forced to carry his cross uphill. A task he was, by that point, too weak to finish by himself. The mighty one who sustains all life is forsaken. Peter, James, John, and all the rest of Christ's disciples left him. 
And he kept air in their lungs, their hearts beating, and their muscles working so they could take every step they took away from him. Every crack of the whip, every swing of the hammer upheld by the one undergoing their fierce wrath. And speaking of wrath, this was but the beginning. Jesus, unlike the poor and barren in our passage... He was bereaved of friends and family. Now he hangs on a cross only to be abandoned by his very own father. God himself turned his back on his son. In all his life, he had known only complete and perfect pleasure in union and communion with God. And in an instant, that bond is broken. The sinless one had become sin itself And divine wrath is poured out until not a drop remains. The Son of God hangs now as the adversary of God. And yet, in reversals, instead of thundering from heaven against Him, the heavens fall deathly silent. The Son cries out in anguish and desperation for His Father's embrace. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's met with nothing but an echo. He was forsaken. The woman in 1 Samuel gives her son to God. God in the gospel gives his son to the woman. If you do not know Christ, will you come to him this morning? Will you come as come to the one who was rich beyond all measure, but for love's sake became poor? Will you turn in simple faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his death and resurrection for the salvation of your soul? I pray that you will. And if you know the Lord and walk with him, I pray you would be reminded of the cost for your life. And thank God. Well, there are two final points of application I, I'd, I'd like to make before we turn to the Lord's Supper. First, we've seen uh, throughout this sermon this morning, theology is, is vital for our prayers, for our singing, for our lives. You know, it can be tempting to think uh, well, I, I'm no John Owen, I'm no Charles Spurgeon, I'm, I'm not Augustine or, or Anselm, I'm no Martin Luther, Thomas, well, a bunch of Thomases, a bunch of Johns, I'm not these mighty men of the faith from days of old. You're right, but consider the source of this prayer. It's, it's not some... Mighty man of the faith, robust theology, you know, some spiritual axe swinging giant. It's Hannah. It's, it's a woman who had given birth to a little son and is giving him away to Eli as a Nazarite for the rest of his life in fulfillment of a vow that she made to God. That's, all, that's who this is. She lived in the hill country in Ephraim, you know, 3,000 some years ago. And this is her prayer. Now tell me theology doesn't have a place in our lives. You don't have to be the next Sinclair Ferguson or R.C. Sproul to have robust theology that saturates your entire life 
and sustains you in times of trouble. You can, like Hannah, with simple faith in God, commit yourself to loving the truth, loving the God who gave it. Don't discard the significance of theology in your life, brothers and sisters. Good theology certainly won't save you. It alone won't save you. And even really make much of a difference in your life. But immovable, lasting trust in God, strengthened and upheld by our theology and how we understand God, this trust in God shall prove immense. For when we are weak. And if we trust, if we want that trust, it will be immensely difficult to obtain this trust if our theology is weak and frail and we don't understand the being, the character, and the nature of God and His work. Well, second, we're not at all advising that we go and look for dark places. But we can thank God for them. Perhaps you are in a dark place this morning. Perhaps you're struggling personally or financially, maritally. Maybe your dark place involves your children. Maybe it involves your parents. Maybe it involves your back or your car. Maybe it involves a friend who betrayed you. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you've recently lost a loved one. Well, I want to quote Derek Thomas again here. He makes a great observation about this that I, I can't really say any better. So we'll quote, quote him in closing. He says, you know, if it hadn't been for the dark places, Hannah would never have been here. She would never have made that prayer. Perhaps Samuel would never have been born if there hadn't been the dark places, if there hadn't been a panina in her life. I think Hannah came to the point where she saw a glimpse of why God had allowed a panina in her life because she caught a glimpse of what it means to live in subjection to the majesty of God, even in dark places. And so will we learn with Hannah to trust God in the dark. Pray that we will.